0: I was part of a church in Kentucky that met in a big house, like a Victorian house in downtown Lexington. And there's usually about 30 or 40 people in this house. And they met on Sunday nights and they always um, shared kind of dinner at the end of the the worship gathering. And it was great. And it was very inviting to all walks of life to people there in downtown Lexington. And this particular night, kind of how it works is kind of how this so someone kind of delivers the word and then some other leader within the community. Um, Kind of leads leads everyone in communion, and so what happened is the speaker for that particular night kind of got done, and shot a look over to somebody else, thinking, "Okay, now it's your turn to lead everyone in communion," and that person looked back at this person, they're like, "No, I thought you were gonna do it," and this person was like, "No, I thought you were gonna do it. You've been there, right? Like, depend. I trusted you," and they're thinking the same thing, and so it was kind of this awkward like. Who's going to do it? And so um, the speaker said, um, okay, so we've had a little bit of a mix-up. Who would like um, to lead us in communion tonight? And there was a hand that, st- that stuck straight up in the air, and it was belonging to a man named Monty. And Monty had been a part of the community for a few years. Monty was in his probably mid to late 40s. Monty suffered from a mental illness. Um, he was lived in hotels and cars and people's homes and didn't really have a place to stay, oftentimes he slept on the streets and um, was even going through some kind of gender identity stuff and Monty had his fair share of ups and downs in life and you could tell for that particular night he hadn't washed his clothes in a few days um, but he was there because he felt loved and he loved Jesus and this was his community and it was a chance to help out and serve and so Monty sticks his hand up. So the speaker says, Monty, come and lead us tonight. Now, before we go into all the theological and denominational reasons why this shouldn't have happened, (laughs) let's just set that aside, okay? Let's set that aside for right now. It's not the point, really, of the story, okay? So Monty comes up. There's a table much like this, and there was a big loaf of bread and and a cup of of the grape juice there, and Monty kind of comes up to the table, and he's not too graceful, but he comes up to the piece of bread and he, his hands are kind of shaking because he's nervous. Maybe he doesn't do this too often and, and he breaks it. And he says, this is Jesus' body. He puts it down on the table in front of him and he almost hits the cups. So the cup's like almost tipping over. and Everyone's like, oh. and he grabs the cup, shaking again, nervous. And Monty says, and this is Jesus' blood. And he puts it back down. And you could tell there was this moment where he didn't really know like what to say next, like go or you know. So he says, and this this is for you. We're going to share in the family meal. Monty says, this this is for you. And there was this beautiful kind of kingdom irony that was there that someone who many of us would call the least of these is leading everyone and showing everyone a glimpse of the kingdom of God here on earth where he gets to serve us and he gets to say, this is what, in very plain and simple, there's no theological degree needed for this, this broken body and poured out blood. Is for you. The stories that we remember that stick with us are the ones that shape our lives. Some of them maybe have a little more of a positive ending, or maybe have a little bit of a negative ending, but stories that we remember like that shape our lives in dramatic ways and maybe some kind of story like that is one of the reasons why you're a part of this community here, whether it be from years ago or months ago, but they shape our lives in really, really dramatic ways. However, there's another story that remembers us. Give me a chance to explain. There's another story that remembers us. There's stories that are out there that tend to divide and separate and dismember us, right? There's plenty of things happening in the world today. There's no shortage of divisive topics right now, right? And many times these stories can separate us, put us into factions and groups and thems and usses, and they separate us as a people, but there's a story of God that remembers us, that re, in a very literal sense, remembers us, puts us back together again, draws us in, includes us, that puts us together, remembers, like a member of the body, as in the body of Christ, it puts us back together again. And part of Advent is what the job of the church is to do, is to live in such a way that it brings others into the story of God to bring others into the story of God so they can be remembered by this story. We're on episode three of Advent 2017, if you're just joining us. And the question that I'll seek to answer is, how should we prepare? Advent is this time, typically happens at the first Sunday of December, and it counts down kind of the time before the birth of Christ. It's a waiting upon the arrival of Jesus, but also a looking forward to his return. Okay? And it's this time that we sit in, and, and we've had a couple of weeks, and I encourage you to, to listen to those if you haven't. But some of you were here when, um, is it Rabbi Joshua, his name? I got a chance to hear that. That was really cool. And then the first week, um, Pastor Nate led us in kind of a, a little bit of foundation of what Advent is. But we've gathered, it's this time of waiting. It's this time of holy anticipation that Jesus is coming. What do we do now? How should we prepare and so this morning, what I offer to you is three practices, and there's are three words apiece. I want us to keep those in our minds as we leave this place, but we're going to be talking about how should we prepare, how, how should we get ready for the arrival of Christ for this particular year. And the first practice we're going to take a look at, you can see in Scripture, it's going to be in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, if you can turn there, but this first practice and all three of these are pretty hard-hitting, so just a heads up. So this one kind of is right out the gates like, oof. The first one, the first practice on preparing for the arrival of Emmanuel is to shed your cynicism. To shed our cynicism. There's also no shortage of topics in the world today to be cynical about. We're going to take a look at what, what Scripture has to say and what the prophet Isaiah, who has many prophecies about the coming of Christ, and what he has to say and we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 11. You can follow along with me. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. You know the image, the family tree? You've heard of this, right? Think of that in the context here. But the family tree has been cut down to a stump. It's been leveled. It's been cut down. It's good for sitting now. That is about it. It's dead. It's gone. It's a stump. Jesse was David's son through the line of King David from the Old Testament, you know, of the David and Goliath fame. Through that line, Jesus will come out of that. And what Isaiah begins with is, that line It is, it's a stump. That family tree's been cut down. But from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It's funny how it says, a branch will bear fruit, and all of a sudden this branch is personified. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, not on it, but on him. This is the person that's coming the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. And with justice he will give direction, Excuse me, decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The prophecy continues, but maybe ends in this tone of it's like, should we be afraid of this guy, or should we be excited? What, what's the mood supposed to be here? I want to take us to, to verse number one in that, that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse as in a little piece, a little, little green shoot still going to be there. Maybe you've seen on the sidewalk where you see a little plant kind of coming up in the middle, like nothing but cement all around it, and something's just coming up. You're like, hey, look at that guy. There's a fighter. He made it. One of those just right there. You're like, you can do it. That guy is coming up through the stump. Even when, when it looks like dead things are all around us, God is up to something creating new life. There's plenty to be cynical about. And 2007 was the first um, Christmas season that I celebrated Advent. It was when we lived in Kentucky, and I encountered this while in seminary. I had never heard of Advent before. I've never had an Advent calendar in my entire life. I never, I've never. i had chocolate, but not an Advent calendar. <laughs> just to be clear, I wasn't that deprived. Um, but I didn't really even know what it was. I just was like, what is? what is this all about? And then I learned about it, and then don't tell anybody, but I thought I was better than everybody else that just celebrated Christmas in 2007. I was like, oh, well, you don't celebrate Advent like I do. Maybe you haven't heard of it. It's not just chocolate and little doors kind of thing. And so, and then it was around the same time where I saw this documentary called Food Inc. Show of hands, have you seen that one? It's not a happy-go-lucky film. Just, I'm not endorsing it. Um, but I saw that, and I felt just so much better about myself because I started to drink soy milk and not regular milk, and, and the coffee that I got um, was um, conflict-free, cage-free, gluten-free coffee that some missionaries. That some missionaries. It was so. Here's here's how local this coffee was. Some missionaries that lived. Like, three blocks over would roast it in their backyard, and I would get it, and the proceeds for my money to buy this coffee would go towards missions work. I felt so much better than everybody else for drinking that. Everybody else was drinking their Starbucks. <laughs> True, this is confession time right here. <laughs> confession time. Maybe you've been a part of those conversations, too, where you hear about somebody else at work or in your family, like, oh, did you hear about them doing this? And your first thought is like, oof, see how long that'll last. I was like, that was the nervous laughter. Like, oh, that's true laughter. Is what that was. There's plenty of things that happen in our world where we could just choose to be like, well, let's see how that goes. I know how that's going to end. I know where I'm going to be. I know how much better than I am than they are. And this cynicism just kind of floats around, and we we can wear this as like a badge. And and one of my mentors actually said this line, and it's still kind of hits me today. He says, Cynicism is the bitter fruit of a desecrated imagination. J.D. Walt is who I consider to be the master Jedi of all things Jesus. I haven't seen the movie. Don't tell me. Don't ruin the spoilers of the other master Jedi stuff. Um, but J.D. Walt, about 10 years ago, when he writes about Advent, he says, Cynicism is the bitter fruit of a desecrated desacred, to make unsacred imagination. It's this idea that hope is lost. In fact, the the formula for cynicism is hopelessness plus anger, very veiled anger, equals cynicism. That no good can come of a certain person, of a certain situation, of a certain development, that it's all for naught. And underneath all that, underneath kind of this machismo or female version of that, of like, oh, I'm better than, like, it's, there's all hope is lost and we're disappointed and we're unhappy about it. And sometimes the only thing that we can do is just to make cynical comments and cynical judgments to hide hide from our own disappointment about certain situations. And even when the stump is dead, even when the family tree has been cut down, Isaiah's prophecy says there's a, there's a green, there's going to be a leaf, there's going to be a little shoot that's going to pop out of that, and God is up to something. Maybe for this season of Advent, for this year, it is time for us to say, you know what? Because I follow Jesus, or because I'm interested in this man from Nazareth, I don't know where I sit with Jesus yet, wherever you're at in the room, but because I'm there, you know what? I'm just going to allow what God's going to do for God to do. And there is hope. And if I can believe that, that a God wrapped, on, wrapped in flesh came down here with us 2,000 years ago and he's returning again, I'm going to believe that he's up to something around here. And I'm going to ask to join him in it. And that takes a shedding of our own cynicism. At this time, too, there can be so much, um, and maybe us in the room think that, oh, the world out there, all they do is just celebrate gifts and Santa, and we're in here, we know the reason for the season. And my mom had that mug, too. It's okay. That's fine. But here's the deal. Jesus is not competing with Santa. He's not. It's not, it's, he's not. You know, burn the Yuletide log and sing, you know, Advent songs. Do, do both. It doesn't have to be an either. Or it doesn't have to be like, oh, we, we got it down together. It's us. The culture doesn't understand. You're right. The culture may to understand. But us taking a cynical stance isn't going to help that situation. And I began with, hey, I, I led the way with the confessions on where I've been. Like, I've, so maybe I'm the only one in the room. I doubt it. But maybe I am. <laughs> okay. But may we practice hospitality in the midst of this kind of potentially hostile time. Hospitality in the midst of hostility. That in the midst of when everything doesn't bleak and there's just maybe just, there's no way this can happen, may we practice this life-giving kind of hope. May we invite others into it. May we drop the conversations on who, you know, red cup or put a cross on a cup. You know that a couple years ago? Man, maybe part of this Advent season is for us to just lose that, to know this is not our fight, that the victory's been won, and we're going to believe in this shoot that will come out of the stump of Jesse. And Jesus has come, and he is returning, and we're going to live in that kind of hope. Practice number one, shed the cynicism. Hospitality in the midst of hostility. Okay. Practice number two, they're not going to get any easier, by the way. Practice number two. Turn a few pages back or to Isaiah chapter seven. Actually, excuse me, Psalm 25, forgive me. Psalm 25 is practice two. Psalm 25. Preparing for the arrival of Emmanuel. Practice number two. It's hard for us to wait, right? It's hard. It's like boredom is, is no good anymore. Like we're not supposed to be bored. Two thousand seven, the advent of the iPhone. See what I did there? So it first came out. I had a friend that got it, and I was like, I thought it was ridiculous because I was like, they make computers, why are they making phones? And what um, was I wrong? And he said, um, it's great. You can just like be at the store, be in line. And like you get bored and you can just pull your phone out and just start doing stuff. And my first thought was like, why is it a bad thing to be bored? Why is it a bad thing to just wait? I've noticed myself, maybe you've been there too. If you're at dinner with someone or maybe you're at the dinner table at home or you're, you're, you're there with somebody else and they leave to go to the restroom. And it's like a instinctual, like, well, I'll see what's going on here, right? Come on. I'm not the only one in the room. Yep, right now, if I was just, right now, if like all, like, you know, John and I and this, and maybe this came down, and I was like, hey, just hold on real quick, guys. There'd be plenty of people that are like, well, let me just kind of see what's going on here, because we don't like to wait. What do we do with that? Like stoplights, if if this takes a second and a half longer than we think it should, we go ballistic, (laughs) hopefully just in our heads, but it's tough for us to wait, so what do we do? So practice number two, give up control. Ooh. <laughs> that was the real. <laughs> Three words, give up control. Let's talk about that. Psalm 25. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. Don't let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame, but shame will come on those who are treacherous without cause. And the writer of the psalm continues to write, verse 4, Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Some translations will, will, will translate that, for you I will wait all day long. You ever had a flight delay at the airport? Okay, get, get in that emotional state real quick. Just, just hang with me. Waiting reminds us that somebody else has the control. can't do anything about it. Waiting reminds us that we are not in control, that somebody else has the, if you want to look at it this way, the upper hand. Somebody else can dictate what's going to be the, the circumstances. And because since the beginning of time, not, male, not, male, not a female trait or a male trait, but a human trait, control is something that we, that we crave, all of us at some level. And when we're waiting, it's a reminder that we, we don't make the world go round. If you're married to someone or if you have a loved one that is late often, I imagine that's, those aren't great dinnertime conversations all the time. Because part of it, it gets at this core that like, we are not in control it's something or somebody else actually is. There's no, no bigger reminder to me that I am not in control than when I first became a dad. If you've had kids, you are not in control. You aren't in any kind of way. You've been fed, you've been burped, you've been changed, you're, you're warm enough. Why, it's this stuff especially at like 1 and 3 and 4.30 in the morning and then, you know, for a long period of time, for those that that don't, you know, haven't had the privilege of having children or raising them when they're they're young. I don't have teenagers yet, too, so I could just be still super naive about things. I know it's only going to get better. But um, (laughs) I know that um, maybe you trusted someone and they let you down. Somebody else. And that, it, it takes quite a bit of vulnerability, too, to do that. And then it's a reminder that, like, I, I'm not holding all this together. Maybe there's someone in your life that has an addiction. You can't control that. You can't control their thoughts, their decisions, their feelings, their emotions. Everyone has a choice. You and them. And can I just insert this real quick? If you are in a relationship with someone or you know someone close to you that they have an addiction and you're trying to control it, it's controlling you. Let let go. Let go. And it's one of the hardest things for us to do, for me as well. It is. Because it is, you, when you think you're controlling things, which is just an illusion, by the way, it's a mirage. When you think that's happening, then you feel kind of, you feel in control, right? You feel like hey, I did this, a sense of power and accomplishment, but it, it's, it's not sustainable. It's very, very hard for us to do. So the, the second practice, may we practice just letting go while we wait. To, to let go. May, may this time be a reminder that I am not in control. The sovereign God who came as a helpless baby He's the one that holds all things together. Paul writes in the New Testament, in Christ, all things are held together. Not you and not me. Not us, guys. If Advent is anything, it's this reminder that we're not in control and we needed a Savior because we couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't control, we can barely control ourselves. Hey, this time be a reminder that we're not in control. And that's a good thing. Can you imagine the decisions that have to get made in the heavens? This one time I was really stressing out, like really, really stressing out. And I was talking to a friend. And I was like, and this this, my job, this. And this is going to be late. And then this. And I have to go do this. And I just, (sighs) and he goes, you should just quit your job, man. I said, what? No, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Like, we don't have enough money because of this. He goes, no, you should just quit your job. I said, what? He says, as manager of the universe. You got me. You got me. It's like, oh, man, you're right. He's like, you're just trying to control everything, and you're not good at it. Let God do it. And it's tough, and it takes trust, and it can be scary. I'm I'm with all that. I'm a human being just like you. But may we let go in this waiting time. May we let go while we wait. Practice number three. Now we're going to go to Isaiah 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Preparing for the arrival of Emmanuel, practice number 3. Behold the present. We'll start at verse 10. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 10. This was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest, deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, it's kind of like Isaiah saying, Oh, God's going to show you a sign then. If that's the way it's going to be, he's going to show you something. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, I've bolded that, exclamation pointed it, and put brackets around it because it's not in many texts these days. In the King James Version, it is. And I've talked about King James Version. I was raised on that. My dad would say, if it's good enough for King Jimmy, it's good enough for me. And he would. Say, I never understood that, really, because I'm like, you don't even know the king. How do you know you like what he likes? In my head, I was saying that. I didn't say it that, that loud. <laughs> Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. Behold is this word it means to, as I put it, to pay attention, to pay enough attention to discover something, to give enough attention to something to really realize or discover I me mean, to learn something. It wasn't until just a handful of years ago that I was lying down on the grass in the park with Bella, who's nine now, and we were like, she was like five years old, and we were looking at the clouds and sh- making shapes and stuff with the clouds. I wanted to do that. And you know, like, there's big, big, fluffy, Cotton candy clouds, right? There's those. And they're not, they're not here too often in the Sacramento area. They're, they're In other parts of the country that has weather patterns, um, they're there, right? But here, there's a lot of that, like, smeared cream cheese. These are all technical terms. I'm sorry to talk over your heads meteorologically. Um, <laughs> but that kind of, like, just real wispy, like, just real thin kind of looks like frosting in the sky, right? I never knew that those actually move, too. So just a few years ago. Those actually are moving like just as fast as we see those big cotton candy ones moving. And it wasn't until I took the time to behold the skies that I could see. Those were moving too. To behold is to pay enough attention to something to discover something about it. And it's it's quite hard for us to do because oftentimes we're looking to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Raise an honest hand if at least one time since since I've began speaking, you've thought about something other than what's happening in this room. Honest hands. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability. Yes. Thank you. There was a study done in 2010 by some Harvard psychologists, and it said they um, actually had like 2,250 people participate, and they found that almost 47% of the time, 46.9, so half the time, can we just say that? 47, if you want to get 46.9, if you want to get literal, people throughout the day were thinking something other than what they were doing right here and now. And the level at which their minds weren't in the present was correlated to how happy or unhappy they were. Even if they were doing kind of unenjoyable things. That wasn't so much of a predictor as it was. It's, it's they were fully present right here and now on what's happening. It's becoming easier and easier for us as a culture to not be here and now. The speed at which things move these days is shocking. Trying to pull us out from what's happening right in front of us. Is God up to something and maybe we're just overlooking it? I think I've said this here before. Moses and the burning bush I wonder how long that bush was burning before we saw it. Maybe it was burning for a while, I don't know. Is God up to something around you, but, but but maybe because it's so easy, we're so fixated on something else other than right here and right now. Are we overlooking something like that? God only moves in the present. He only moves in the here and now. It can be a little bit uncomfortable when it's like, what's going to happen next? It could be related to how, how often we do or do not spend time in the right here and now. Practice number three. Be here now. It's okay if your mind goes away because now is kind of eternal, right? And we take this opportunity as we're, as we're waiting and we're looking forward towards the hope of Christ and his return to maybe move a little bit slower to take notice on what God might be doing around us To be here in the here and now. Because God's up to something. That, that shoot is coming forth. Jesus says, my father's always at work. And I'll be, I'm the champion of being too busy to, to notice it. Like, please hear that. And maybe there's a few of you out there with me. So may this be a season of slowing down to hear and to see and experience what God might be up to. Maybe it's a practice of one minute to five minutes a day of just feeling the breath in and out of our lungs and of our nostrils to place ourselves in here and now. Practice number one, shed your cynicism, shed our cynicism. Practice number two is to give up control. Practice number three is to be here right now. These are the things that we can do to prepare for the arrival of Emmanuel. Those are it. I invite you to that. I'm I'm trying my best these days too. That's why they're called practices, by the way. Practices. If you get off track, it's okay. There's grace for that too. I'm going to pray and then we're going to continue worshiping together. Father, give us the heart and the posture to wait on you with these kinds of practices. And in these moments of looking towards hope and not not looking at the cynical things that we can think of, as we give up control and say, I'm not in control, God, you are in control, as we slow down and as we take time just to notice and to listen, to behold someone or something, would you help us to experience you, to experience your arrival and your return in fresh and life-giving ways. Thank you for my friends in this room. Thank you for the Emmaus community. Thank you for what you're doing here. And we give you full permission, full control, as if you didn't have it already, to do whatever you'd like with us during this season of Advent. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.